Yo, everybody, what's up? Today we have Michael Levan, consultant, trainer, and content creator, joining us for our topic of Kubernetes. Yes, we're still talking Kubernetes. Is it just another virtualization of my virtualized data center that might be virtualized in somebody else's computer? I'm not sure, but what's the value? What's the skills? What about the cost of implementing it? Is it the latest fad or is Kubernetes here to stay? Please join me in welcoming Michael Levan to the show. Michael, buddy, thanks for joining me. Thanks, John, for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Michael, we're going to jump right in it. There is this hot topic of Kubernetes, and it's getting bigger and better due to the recent, obviously, cost efficiency optimization and cloud optimization that's happening in the world today. Let's talk Kubernetes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to, to answer your question, the is it virtualization on virtualization? I would say yes. Um, you know, you can have instances where you're running bare metal. You can have instances where you're running on VMs. You know, you could have Kubernetes running in your on, on your ESXi boxes. Uh, you could have Kubernetes running in the cloud. Obviously, there's there's a bunch of different you know uh, places to run it. But from a virtualization perspective, these are this is the key difference to think about. ESXi, Hyper-V, you know, uh, por uh, Porksmox, is it? Uh, you know, all these virtualization platforms, right? These are to virtualize your hardware. Containerization is to virtualize your operating system. So it's still virtualization happening. It's just happening at a different level or layer rather. Now, wait, because ESXi, so VMware, I'm virtualizing my hardware. ESXi is virtualizing the hardware, but I'm installing virtual operating systems, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the whole idea about just like overall virtualization, like th again, thinking about ESXi, thinking about Hyper-V, you take a server and this server maybe has, I don't know, 64 gigs of RAM, X amount of cores, storage, yada, yada. So what, what would happen back in the day was you would buy this server and you would run one application on it, one application stack on it, and you would use like 20% of it. So like it didn't make sense because you were spending a ton of money. Uh, you know, you were running these things in, in, in the data center. You had your HVAC systems on to make sure everything was cool. A lot of electric, just a lot of money going in and out in general and a lot of boxes to manage for kind of no reason. So that's where virtualization came into play where it was like, hey, this box, we're only utilizing 20% of it. Let's utilize all of it. Let's, let's utilize 100% of it. But at the same time, we need to segregate these resources. That's where virtualization kind of came into play. Then thinking about containerization, now we don't care where it's running. We're just literally virtualizing the operating system and kind of, I, I don't want to call it watering down the op uh, operating system, but essentially just installing the necessary things. Like when you're running uh, an Nginx container, when you're running, uh, um, I think they're no, yeah, they would be considered nodes like Bottle Rocket, for example, in AWS. The, or, no, Bottle, I'm sorry, Bottle Rocket is a, a Linux AMI. Sorry. That, that AMI, that container that's running Nginx, it only has on it what it needs to run. So that's the virtualization piece of, you know, thinking about it from an operating system perspective and obviously a smaller footprint. You know, when you install any operating system, you're talking about gigs. When you install or run a container, you're talking about megs or less. Why don't the operating systems run at megs and why are they running at gigs? Why can't I just have the necessary stuff? You know, it's the dumbest question I have to ask because 
if you think about it, I, I would buy even a desktop, right? Or a server and my root volume used to have to be like, I don't know, a, a small amount, you know, 10 gigs. Now my root volume for like a Windows server or operate has to be like 60 gigs because yeah. of the growth expanding. Why can't I have just run what I need to, to get what I need to get done? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it really just comes down to bloat. You know, like when you like when you're thinking about desktops in general, like when you're thinking about a Windows desktop, for example, if you look and see what's installed, like there's Xbox stuff installed, there's photo stuff yeah, installed. Microsoft there's, Store. There's, yeah, there's this, there's that. And that's fine for like the average consumer, but that's not fine for the business. You know, like I, I would certainly hope, unless it's just a really slow week, you're not sitting and playing Xbox games on your work computer. They probably can't run anyways. You got me. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, when, when you're thinking about like Windows Server, same thing. There's so many, uh, like when you're thinking about like Active Directory, when you're thinking about various different roles and features, print servers, um, SMB, et cetera, on a Windows Server, there are so many different roles and features that you can install within, a, within the server manager that that just causes it to grow and grow and grow. Then there is, you know, from a Linux perspective, Linux, uh, the distributions themselves are obviously way smaller. Like you could run Ubuntu on a 10 gig hard drive, but that 10 gig comes from just years of, of kernel updates and modulizations and everything, right? Like everything's kind of there since the beginning. And that's where, uh, you know, things like Bottle Rocket and stuff come into play. It It's a Linux distro, but it's meant specifically to run containers. It's all it does. It does not do anything else. There's, there's nothing else on it. So you do have these uh, various levels of virtualization and operating systems where like you can um, shorten the footprint a little bit and you can make it a little bit smaller. You can water it down, whatever you want to call it, but it all kind of depends on where and how you're running. Michael, Kubernetes has been around for some time now, uh, quite often. I don't even know how many years, what are we over five years now or somewhere close? Yeah. Since, since around, uh, end of 2015. Okay. So actually eight years, but I still feel that it's not widely adopted. It's only really kind of picked up in the last couple of years, but I'm not mm -hmm. very familiar of many enterprises that have implemented it company-wide. They might've implemented it for their development, but are they using it for production? And you know, like why are, why is it not picking up more in enterprise or production level? Yeah. So I think it's very important to remember and, you know, it's because we're all on social media. So like we kind of see this every day. <laughs> Sorry to everybody that's listening, but I have to say it. Um, there's a big difference between what technical marketers are telling us and what is actually happening in production environments. So for me as an independent consultant, I do things a little bit differently. Typically you'll see uh, independent folks, right? Either just doing a bunch of content or doing a bunch of consulting. I do both. So I have clients where I'm working in their production environments. I'm writing production level code. I'm spinning up production level Kubernetes environments. And I'm also working with the product companies, create, uh, writing blogs for them, doing videos, white papers, et cetera, et cetera. So I see both very, very well in real time. And what I can tell you is this, the, the products that are being created for Kubernetes right now, they're going to be more relevant in a couple of years. Kubernetes itself, it's going to continue to expand. And the reason why is because what happens in uh, real enterprise production level environments is very different than what we're hearing on social media. This is the new thing. This is what's going to be, be working, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is, is that it takes enterprises a very long time to move off of what they're already running on. 
there are so many organizations that still have their own data centers that still have fleets of ESXi boxes and they're running perfectly fine. And they, they probably still have plenty warranty left. They probably still have a uh, plenty of customer or uh, engineering support from v VMware left. Everything's running as is. So to get the enterprise to <laughs> completely not only shift the way that they think, but have the engineering capacity, the people to migrate all of this stuff from VMware, put it on a container, that's just step one, and then get it into your orchestration platform, whether that's Kubernetes, whether it's Nomad, whether it's whatever it is, it's a very big lift, especially if you're an organization that's been around for 10, 15, 20 years, you got a lot of stuff. Quite frankly, you also probably got a lot of tech debt, which is most likely going to stop you as well. There's a lot of manual processes that are occurring. You don't know what those are. There's one person in the whole organization that knows what they are. It's, you know, there, so it's not that Kubernetes isn't picking up steam. It's not that Kubernetes isn't being utilized. It's that to move from one uh, architecture to another is not an easy thing. Now, with that being said, I do work from a consulting capacity. I do work with a lot of small organizations and a lot of startups to get, you know, their environments up and running. And luckily with startups, they're starting fresh. So they get to start on all this stuff. But here's the thing. If those startups succeed and they exist in 10, 15 years, when the next new thing is out, they're going to have the same problem. Everybody's going to have the same problem over and over again. It's, excuse me. It's just kind of, you know, where we are. Okay, there was a lot to unpack. The first thing is to mention is that it's taken enterprises, you know, five, six years to maybe go to Kubernetes. And that's the same thing with cloud, right? So cloud's big. There's only, I think it was a, labeled as maybe three, we might be up to 5% of companies are actually moved or migrated to cloud because it takes mm -hmm. that amount of time. I think going to Kubernetes will, I don't want to say complicated, but will kind of revamp that decision-making process and how they plan to go to cloud. Do we mm -hmm. go to Kubernetes first and then in the cloud or do we re-architect it? And those are some of the questions I want to dive into in a second. Let's talk about Kubernetes specifically and some of the components. And then my next question off of that is, is it real? I mean, like, how do I repackage, redo an application to make it to Kubernetes? I mean, it's great in theory to do, but I need the skills. So what are the components of Kubernetes and what's sort of the process that I can get an application packaged into it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I always see stuff online that everybody kind of talks about and says, you know, Kubernetes makes things easier and yada, yada. Um, and yes, that's true after you're in Kubernetes, but to lead up to get your workloads into Kubernetes is not a, uh, task for the fan of heart, right? Like it's not like something that you're just going to do. And, you know, cause again, going back to the, uh, technical marketing versus reality, and I hate to say it like that, but it's just, it's kind of true. How can I put it? I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way. The tools and the process and the procedures to make it easier to get it going uh, to get it migrated, to, you know, move from a binary Java binaries or whatever binaries running on a VM or a bunch of VMs 
to get them containerized, to put, put them into Kubernetes. There are tools and there are procedures and there are best practices, a million of them out there. But again, it's really a matter of hiring the people, getting the right expertise, getting your current staff trained up to understand that because you're, you're literally turning an orange into an apple. You know, this isn't something where it's like, Hey, let me just, you know, take my binary and throw into a container and throw into Kubernetes and poof, everything's done. It doesn't work that way. There are dependencies. There are several binaries. There are, is your application a microservice stack or does it have dependencies? There's okay. This part of the application needs to run, but to do so, middleware needs to be there. And that means the middleware piece needs to be containerized prior, but oh wait, there's also a database that it needs to talk to. And yeah, there's so many different things that you kind of need to think about. And not only that, but there is the, I'll call it the day zero piece, which is planning what you're doing. Where are you running Kubernetes? What security practices do you need for your organization, for your level of compliance? A, a startup creating a product is going to have way different compliance and security needs than uh, a government regulated environment. So like there are all these different things, the different tools that you're going to use. There are over 1300 tools on the CNCF landscape. You're not using all of them. You're not going to know all of them. You're maybe going to be an expert in two of them if that's. So you got to kind of figure out this whole process, like the whole planning process. And then you can start thinking about like, oh, now I need to containerize this application. Well, now I know I'm going to use Docker or cloud native build packs or scaffold or whatever I'm using to create container images. So it's like, and I, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, uh, I, I just, I'm just talking and talking and talking, right? I'm kind of babbling, but the, the reason why I'm doing that is because I want to make it hundred percent clear that there are a lot of steps that you need to take. And usually organizations aren't going to have 30 free engineers to get all this stuff done. So you, you got to plan accordingly because if you don't plan properly in the beginning, you will end up with a massive amount of tech debt later on. And, you know, there's, there's also the piece and then I'll shut up, but there's also the piece of, I, I can take a nail and I can hammer it into wood with, you know, the handle part, but even though I can do it, it's not efficient, right? So like there are a lot of environments right now that are running Kubernetes that are not running them in the most efficient way. And when I say most efficient way, I mean the uh, proper procedures and protocols and best practices. And hey, you can run it this way, but everybody's running it like this. So guess what? There's going to be far more documentation, support, community over here versus over here. Over here is homegrown. Over here is the enterprise. So you, there's just so many different things to think about when you're even uh, debating the idea of utilizing Kubernetes. Part of the components of Kubernetes, so Kubernetes is just the orchestrator for your containers, correct? Yeah. And, yep. and, and everybody says, Kubernetes, can I really run like, I can run a single container and run an environment, but it's not really efficient, right? For like development's okay, but for production, it doesn't do anything. If something breaks, something happens, it's done. My container, my node doesn't handle it. I mean, talk to me about the different components of containers and how Kubernetes is managing them and why I would take this into a production environment. Yep. So by default, containers are meant to be looked at as ephemeral. So you should not be thinking about containers as long running. Containers inside of pods, do pods run for a month, two months, six months? Absolutely they do. 
should you architect your de- your design decisions about or around the idea of this thing is going to always run? No, because pods, containers, they're all meant to be ephemeral. So to your point, once a container goes down, like let's say I'm just running a Docker container on a server. If that thing has any issues at all, if it goes down, that's it. I have to manually go back in and, and rerun this thing. And that's it's t- that's time consuming. That's cumbersome. Nobody wants to do that. That sounds so that, like the old school VMware and virtualized <laughs> environment where it didn't have an auto restart feature. Right? I, I had to wake up my server admin at 2 a.m. to go power on the device. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's the same exact thing, 100%. And that's where orchestration platforms come into play. Whether you're using Docker Swarm, whether you're using Kubernetes, whether you're using Nomad, whether you're using ECS, uh, whatever you're using, Azure Container Apps, GKE, um, uh, GCP's, uh, what is it? Cloud Run, I think. I think that's what it is. W- regardless of what you're using, regardless of what orchestrator you're using, it really, it does a lot of stuff, don't get me wrong, but it has one job. Schedule my containers. Schedule my pods. Make sure these things are running as they are supposed to be. Make sure that the current state is the desired state. Is the current state not the desired state? Make it the desired state. That's really the whole job of an orchestrator. An orchestrator, at the end of the day, it, like like just thinking about Kubernetes, it has a scheduler piece in its control plane. That's really its whole job. Its whole job is really to take containers or pods in the, in the Kubernetes sense and run them and make sure that they're running appropriately with the with you know with what they need to be able to run and where they need to run and all that stuff. But then you have different pieces of it. So for example, on the control plane, again, you got the API server. Why do you have the API server? Well, because you need a way to interact with Kubernetes. Why do you have etcd, which is, you know, the, the, the data store, the database? Because you need a place to store all the, all the, uh, all the information. You know, Kubernetes has stuff that needs to be saved. So you need to save it all there. So it's, you know, there, and then, you know, you go into this and you go into that. And, you know, before you know it, you got this whole environment and this whole, you know, I'll call it infrastructure. But at the end of the day, when you peel back the onion, the whole idea of a orchestrator is scheduling pods and, and scheduling containers. And that's why, for example, um, I, I'll still never, well, I mean, I do understand it. It's just because, this is just the way that the market went, but I'll, I'll never fully understand from a technical perspective why Docker Swarm didn't kick off way more than Kubernetes did. Docker Swarm is immensely easier to use than Kubernetes is. I mean, it, it's a night and day difference. It's so much easier to use Swarm, but here's the problem. There's no GitOps. There's no this tool. There's no that tool. People aren't building for Swarm. People aren't building right now for Nomad. So when we think about why we're using Kubernetes, really the reason why we're using Kubernetes is because that's what everybody's building for. For you know, and and that's that's been the way that tech has been since the beginning of time. You look at ESXi versus Hyper-V. They're the same thing. peel back the onion it's the same thing but everybody was building for vmware and because of that the the marketing value that you had vmware versus hyper v right uh or you know kubernetes versus docker swarm kubernetes sounds cooler i want to build for that (laughs) right in all honesty it was the visibility of the marketing and the capability out there that probably Mm -hmm. kind of pushed some of that Michael, let's talk a little bit about not only 
uh, one of the things that the, the adoption and production, and here's my personal opinion, in my humble opinion, I must state, it is my disclaimer, that things that uh, engineers are now doing, they play around with Kubernetes. This is really cool. I like this. Great. We're going to use it in production. It's the typical dev moves to production type model, which you really shouldn't do. But one of the things that you talked about before was that they're not building to best practices. So I played around with this in dev. It works. It grates its run. Now I push it to production and, and not ending it to best practices. Does that go along the skill sets and some of the things that you're working with and doing as a consultant? Yeah. So here, here's the thing. You know, you mentioned this earlier that Kubernetes is about eight, eight years old, give or take. Now, if we think about the, you know, the, the old psychology thought process of it takes, you know, 10,000 hours or 10 years to master something, nobody is a master. Nobody's an expert in this, in the Kubernetes realm right now, not to mention Kubernetes is constantly changing, not the core of Kubernetes, but how you're utilizing Kubernetes, the tools and the platforms and the add-ons that are being used for Kubernetes, the different practices. So at the end of the day, in my opinion, I think it's going to be incredibly hard to become an expert in Kubernetes. With that being said, the reason why Kubernetes is being implemented into these environments without best practices is because here's the thing, you take a platform engineer, you take a DevOps engineer, SRE, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, they got to worry about Kubernetes and containerization. They also got to worry about the 50 other things that they're working on. They got to worry about the network. They have to worry about CICD. They have to worry about infrastructure as code. They have to worry about their automation and their scripts. They don't have the time to sit there and just be an expert or be looked at as the expert in-house in Kubernetes. Because of that, that's where, you know, like you said, I kind of come in from a consulting perspective because this is what I do. I just focus on Kubernetes and containerization. It's what I do day in and day out. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult to be an expert in something that's constantly changing. Now, with that being said, like I, like I said, I, I focus on this 100%. I focus on Kubernetes and containerization 100%. I'm not an expert. I'm always I was just reading. about to ask. So, Michael, are you an expert in this field? <laughs> I, I mean, because I don't, I don't, I don't think anybody can be. You know, I am constantly always learning. I am constantly always testing and playing with new tools. I'm constantly always doing implementations. Just the other day, for example, I was working with one of my clients, and I could not, for the life of me, get EKS registered in Datadog. I've done it a ton of times with AKS. I've done it a ton of times with on-prem environments. I could not get EKS working. Now, for whatever reason, with the Helm chart, when, you, when you're when um, you deploying the Datadog cluster agent and node agents to your uh, uh, EKS environment, you have to specify in the Helm chart the cluster name. For whatever reason, you don't have to do that anywhere else, but you got to specify it. And the Datadog documentation... Nowhere in the documentation, like with the errors that I was getting state, hey, this is what you need to do. So like this was literally just me. I, I had the the the, the helm chart, uh, the values.yaml is like 300 lines, I think, or more. And I'm just sitting there reading through it, reading through it, reading through it. And I'm like, what could the problem be? Because everything is, it's supposedly everything is good. And I just started throwing random values in. And I was like, oh, this is the one. 
Awesome. So like point being, I do this, I do, I do the Kubernetes and the containerization every day. And like, I'm still like, things are still tripping me up. So I don't think that there's a, uh, I don't think that there's a way to be an expert in a hundred percent. What I do believe is that if you, if you have the ability to focus in a hundred percent, go for it. That's what I'm doing. I enjoy it. I learn a lot. I, I, you know, play around with really cool technology. Um, so, you know, that's, that's my take on it. So everybody, real quick, I just want to give you a recap on what we're talking about and who we're talking with. We're talking with Michael Levan, who's a consultant trainer and content creator. And our today's topic is around Kubernetes. What is it another virtualization of my data center that's virtualized in somebody else's data center? The skill sets, the cost of implementation, plus is Kubernetes here to stay? Michael, you were talking about the Helm chart. What is the Helm chart? What is it used for? Yeah, good question. So Helm chart is, uh, well, you can look at it in two ways. It's used to make your life easier or you, you're going to hate your life after you use them. Uh, it's, it's one or two. It's, it's, it's one like of the two. Coin. <laughs> it's one of the two. Um, so the idea of a Helm chart is this. When, let's say you're deploying an application stack, you're going to have a ton of Kubernetes manifests for your front end, for your middleware, for your back end, for, you know, just all these pieces, for your secrets, uh, for your config maps, just for your RBAC, just all these different various uh, levels. So let's say, you know, by the time you're done, you got 15 Kubernetes manifests. Now you could run kubectl apply minus F and all of them, or you could use something like a Helm chart. So what a Helm chart does is essentially at a high level, it just takes all of your Kubernetes manifests and it just puts them into a package so you can deploy them all at the same time. Is that like zipping them all up? Is that just like a zip file? I'm going to compress this and here you go. <laughs> no, not necessarily compressed, but it can be looked at the same way. So like, for example, um, if you, and you know, usually people have used Helm charts in one way or another. So like I use them a lot, for example, to like install various tools like Datadog or, you know, uh, Prometheus or Grafana or HashiCorp Vault or like whatever. And I just have to run one command, Helm install, point to the repo where the Helm chart is and poof, I'm, I'm off to the races. But if you go into GitHub and if you look at the repo that that Helm chart is pointing to, or the Helm install rather is what chart it's pointing to, you're going to see a whole bunch of files in there. You're going to see a whole bunch of templates, deployment templates, service templates, RBAC templates, CRDs, yada, yada. So it kind of just uh, takes everything that's in one place and deploys it all at the same time versus you having to manually run, you know, Excuse me, sorry. kubectl apply minus f, kubectl create minus f, etc. Okay, wasn't Kubernetes once thought of, oh, this is going to be awesome. It's going to make me cloud agnostic, hardware agnostic, the portability. I'm going to be able to take it from Azure to AWS to GCP, and it's not even going to matter. Is it still thought that way, and is it really possible? Yeah. So the whole idea of Kubernetes in the beginning was just to schedule your containers. Uh, that was it. Like that was the whole purpose. Uh, it wasn't meant to be what it is today with all of these different third party tools, with all these different services, with, with all this GitOps and this service mesh and this yada, yada. It makes things easier in certain capacity. <laughs> but, at the, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like this was not what it was meant to do you know like i started using kubernetes in 2016 2017 and like this was not what it was meant to do it was just meant to 
take my containers and and manage them. That was it. But now it, it's all of this stuff, and because of all of this stuff, doesn't make certain things easier. Sure. Does it make everything harder? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like for example, um, you know, like thinking about just thinking about service mesh. The whole idea of service mesh, just at a high level, uh, you know, you're you have the ability to encrypt your traffic from a networking perspective because uh, networks are usually very flat. So you're you're doing a lot of security for inbound and outbound, right? Egress, ingress, a lot of firewall rules, a lot of this thing can talk to that thing, etc. But once it's in the network, it's very flat. There's not a whole lot going on. Service mesh is uh, pretty much allows you to manage that internal flat network, make sure that everything is encrypted, make sure east-west traffic is happening as expected, latency, making sure that you can troubleshoot all that, etc. That's just a high level of a service mesh. But, um, can I do all of that without a service mesh? Absolutely. Like it, service mesh isn't isn't inventing anything here. It's really just taking a whole bunch of stuff and packaging it up into one thing. So utilizing a service mesh, yeah, it makes all of that stuff way easier. But guess what? Now you got to go learn service mesh, and you got to dive into Linkerd and Istio and Console Connect and yada, yada. Like, so it does make things easier, but at the same time, it makes things harder. You ever? Uh, there's this old movie, and I'm gonna. It, I don't know if I can date myself back there. It's probably like 20 years old by now. It's a, it was a, I want to say a military comedy movie. And it was about creating a Bradbury tank. And this Bradbury tank was to go in and basically take forces either to the front or pull forces back. Simple design, right? That's all it was meant to do. And then they had the bright idea like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to protect our troops? So they started putting on like uh, extra weapons and everything on it to, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, if it could flow, it could drive across water? Yeah, so they started doing this. Now all of a sudden they added all these components from what it originally stated and it was bloated. Does it feel like Kubernetes, is, you know, it was just a scheduler. Now it's throwing all these extra things, just like an operating system. I could have the minimal, and now I have all these extra things. Is it getting too much add-ons to it? And can I just simplify it to do what it was meant to be? Yeah. So I, I, I believe that everything is done with good intention. You know, like for example, let's, let's look at WordPress. What, what was WordPress supposed to be in the beginning? Blogging. Now it's like a content manager and, and these ads and this and yada, yada. Like, so WordPress is very bloated right now. WordPress is not wow, the plugins for that. Everything. Slow yeah. down my website like crazy. <laughs> exactly. So like WordPress is not uh, used today. What it was intended for. However many years ago, was it done on purpose? Was like somebody sitting there and they were like, we're going to make this thing suck. No, no, <laughs> nobody was like, nobody, nobody thought that in their head. They were like, we want to add this thing. Uh, a customer is asking for this feature. Oh, this would be awesome. This would make things so much easier. And before you know it, you kind of just keep stacking until you're like, uh-oh, what is this behemoth that we just built? Um, and I think Kubernetes is the same thing. Like nobody's building these tools and, and platforms and stuff to be like, Let's slow this thing down and make everybody's lives more difficult. Uh, people are building it because it's like, let's make things easier. And these things do make things easier. But then you take a step back and you're like, oh, there's a lot of stuff here. Like there's a lot of stuff that you got to learn. There's a lot of stuff that we got to figure out. So it, it's, can you use Kubernetes for what it was just intended to do? 
Yes. Would you benefit from it? Not as much. You know, let, let's take a let's take a very uh, strong yet simple example. Kubernetes secrets. You can use Kubernetes secrets, but here's the problem: they are stored in plain text, Base sixty four within etcd. So they're not actually secrets. You know, they're not fully encrypted end to end. Because of that, you typically want to use a third party uh, secrets manager like HashiCorp Vault is very, very good implementation in Kubernetes. So you're, you're utilizing this thing outside of Kubernetes, but at the same time, it's making your life better. It's making you more secure, but at the same time, it's making it harder because now you have something else you have to manage. And so it's here, here's my take on it. Use what you need. <laughs> don't, don't just go into the CNCF landscape and be like, all these 1300 tools look great. Let's just deploy them all. Don't, don't do that. Just, just use what you need and walk away from everything else. And, and, you know, I, I think that that's very difficult. Uh, for a lot of engineers, because like we kind of just look at stuff and we're like, "Ooh, shiny! This looks great." I do it all the time, literally every single day. I do it every Squirrel. day. That's <laughs> exactly. what I do. <laughs> exactly. But like, then I got to take a step back and I got to be like, "Is this actually necessary?" No. All right, let's walk away from it. You know, really cool. only use what's necessary. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 that's you know going back to what I was saying before. That's the day zero piece. That's the planning piece. That's the what does this thing need. And that's it. Don't don't implement anything else that this thing doesn't need. So you know it's it's it is possible to make it as simple as, as it is possible to make it as simple as possible. I don't know if that's a correct sentence, but um, but you know you just you got to be smart and strategic about it, and you got to plan because before you know it, if you don't plan properly, you're gonna have a ton of tech debt in six months, and you're gonna be like, uh oh, I gotta I, I now I gotta rearchitect this entire thing and. That's never pretty either. Let's talk about the tech that is Kubernetes. Will it ultimately be cost effective for me? And what are some of those cost efficiency things that I should look out for in order to implement this correctly? Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, mean, and, I love and, that and honestness. <laughs> Man, I don't know, but it's pretty cool to install. <laughs> so like, here's the thing. Um, like, let's say you got 10 VMs. And, you know, you're, you're running a bunch of binaries and this and that, and then you convert them all to, you know, container They're not convert. It's not the right word, but you know, you, you, you start to utilize containerization, but now you're running, you know, this managed Kubernetes service in the cloud and you got three, four, five worker nodes and these things are scaling out and this and that. So like, are you saving money by just moving to Kubernetes and being like, yep, we're done. I think it's less, well, yeah, it's a good question. Like I've, I've never really uh, compared the two. I think from a financial perspective, you're going to save money because of certain things like, well, just moving into the cloud in general, like you don't have a data center. You don't have 20 people that you've hired to manage this data center, et cetera. And now you're kind of offloading this thing to the cloud. Um, I, but like that's, I think that's as far as it goes from a cost perspective. Really where you're saving money in Kubernetes is understanding the fact that like, for example, 
You don't have to have somebody, you know, setting up uh, auto scaling. You don't have to have somebody, you know, on call. Oh, this application went down at 2 a.m. I have to go fix it. Like Kubernetes is and then the scheduler and all that. Like that's really supposed and the, the, the self healing that's really supposed to take care of all of that for you. The whole idea is to confirm that your current state is your desired state. If it's not, please do something about it. If something needs to scale at 2 a.m., Kubernetes should be able to handle that for you. If there are four pods and there's supposed to be five pods, Kubernetes should automatically be going and doing that for you. You shouldn't have to wake up at 2 a.m. to kick up the, the the pod replicas. So it's it doesn't save you money, but it realistically should be saving you time. Now, does, does it always do that? already do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, theoretically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's supposed yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the thing about like when you think about the cloud, like let's say you're just running, you know, uh, workloads and VMs and then you're running workloads in Kubernetes. Like at the end of the day, they're all every from a technical perspective, it's all doing the same thing. It's really just the understanding what the next thing is like. Running containers because of the small form factor versus running an entire virtual machine, that's a big difference from, you know, a size perspective, from a, from that type of cost perspective, running a container versus having an entire VM running for an application. That's a significant cost difference. Just like buying 10 servers when realistically you only need to buy three because you can just pop ESXi on them, that's a significant cost benefit. But from a technical perspective, it's all doing the same thing. It's just doing it at a, at a different layer. That's all. Okay. So besides cost, right? So let's take cost out of it. What's my mm -hmm. compelling reason as an enterprise to choose Kubernetes or cloud? Yep. Yeah. So I think it's just the smaller form factor piece. So when when you're when you're thinking about like how everything kind of goes, we started out at mainframes. These things were refrigerator size or bigger. We needed a smaller form factor, but same power. So then we went to servers, much smaller, same power, more power. Then we said, okay, this is pretty big. We need another smaller form factor. So then we went to virtual machines, same power, applications run the same. We can we utilize servers very differently now but they're more powerful or at the same power level. Then we went to containers and it was like, okay, way smaller than a VM, smaller footprint, way less to manage, smaller form factor, applications still perform the same way. Where Kubernetes comes into play is, okay, great, this container is a smaller form factor, it costs us way less, uh, it's, it's way easier to manage, et cetera, but we need a way to run it at scale. That's where an orchestration platform comes into play, like Kubernetes, like Nomad, like Swarm. So it's not really uh, what it's, it's actually the, the debate should more be not what Kubernetes does versus the cloud. It should be what VMs do in the cloud versus what containers do. That's the real debate. Kubernetes is just like the thing that manages your containers but the the meat of it all is what's running inside of your pod which is your application containers the thing that manages your containers like aws is the thing that manages your virtual servers exactly yeah and and guess what there's all like i've had i had a client last year that 
Kubernetes was a huge thing for them and a huge lift, and they decided to go with AWS ECS. ECS is doing the same thing. It's just managing your containers. Same thing as Kubernetes, managing your containers. But going back to our conversation before, it's it's not that Kubernetes is doing something drastically different than all these other orchestrators. It's that this is the thing that the the uh, <laughs> the Kubernetes is the thing that everybody chose to be the thing to use right now. Just like until, until the next thing comes along. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, I, and I always think about it like that, you know, like it is not that Kubernetes is doing something for us way different from a technical perspective than what the ES, uh, ECS does, than what Nomad does, than what Crossplane does, than what uh, Swarm did, Mesos. All of these things are doing the same thing. Kubernetes is just what was chosen. And if you look back over, over the years, same thing again, like we were talking about with virtualization, you had, um, uh, ESXi, you had Hyper-V, you had, I always, I always forget, um, Linux's version of virtualization. Uh, it's, it's still used and stuff, but, oh man, I forget what it was called. I don't even recall for it. I know. I mean, actually Hyper-V, I played around with it, never thought it yeah. was a production type Ready thing right. always had issues uh, yeah. going on, but yeah, but they 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 have Linux Linux has their own that you can use. I just I I I'm I'm forgetting this off the top of my head. Sorry, Anyways, you keep going. I'm gonna Google uh, yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, it, it's not that any of these platforms like did anything different. They all did the same stuff. They all did the virtualization, but vmware was chosen it was the thing that was chosen so well, it's, it's, it's not distro or uh virtual box is it no not virtual box uh, I, I forget yeah uh, but you know the i know yeah i forget well there's the kvm kvm thank you that's what hey, it is good, thank you thank google <laughs> thank google wow yes kvm so you know there's there are all of these the, like these different platforms and they're all they're not doing that they're, they're not doing anything different the only thing is vmware was chosen <laughs> that's it that, that's the only difference so you know underneath the hood it's all the same thing and the same thing with kubernetes kubernetes is doing the same thing that all these other orchestrators are doing at at the technical level of scheduling workloads it's just what was chosen. And that's, that's where I kind of come in from, you know, a training and a consulting perspective. My thing as an independent consultant and as a trainer and as a content creator, I'm not creating stuff that's the latest and greatest. I'm not pushing products on you. I'm teaching you what's being used in production right now. And from a production perspective of what's continuously growing, Kubernetes is being utilized. That's why, you know, when you look at my content and when you look at my consulting and my training and stuff, I'm not just like pushing stuff out that I think is cool. I, very rarely am I creating a, a piece of content that's like, oh, this thing is cool and this is super popular and I'm going to get a lot of views and yada yada. I don't care. What I care about is creating the stuff that's going to help people use in production. What's being used in production right now, realistically, Okay, let me create content on that. Let me create training on that because that's what's actually going to help engineers with their job. You know, all of this other, you know, flashy stuff, this isn't like what's helping them with their job right now. So that's why I focus very much on 
answering the questions in the way that I answer them with not that the difference between Kubernetes and cloud, Kubernetes is doing the same thing as everything else. It's just what's the new thing or, or, or what's the thing right now? And that thing is Kubernetes. Actually, that leads me to my next question, and I have one more after that, is some of the training and technical content that you create. What are some of the skills that are needed? Because going into cloud, you need cloud skills. So that's another one I got to invest in. And now we want to go to Kubernetes, and now I have to invest in Kubernetes and Kubernetes on cloud. And it's a lot to understand for one person to take this on in a short amount of time. What are the skills that are needed in order to run an efficient Kubernetes environment? Yeah, so I would say you should have a solid understanding of infrastructure and systems administration, and you should also have a decent enough understanding of programming and development because you're going to see it on both angles. So like, for example, you can't run a production level Kubernetes environment unless you understand networking. I don't care what anybody says, you can't do it because even though... You know, let's say even you're running in like a managed Kubernetes service, AKS, EKS, GKEY, whatever, you're still managing everything at the network level, not only at the host network level, but at the pod network level. You're still managing firewall rules. You're still managing these network policies. You're still managing ingress and egress. You're still managing what pod can talk to what, what service can talk to what. You're still managing all of this stuff ports, everything. You know, if your application, if your code inside of your application is saying, I need to listen on 8080, port 8080 needs to be open. And then the question is, where does that need to be open? Who else needs to talk to port 8080? What what uh, um, ingress points need to talk to 8080? So it's like, there are all these things from a networking perspective. So networking, you definitely need to know you definitely need to understand general systems administration of operating systems. You need to definitely understand scalability, how it all works, et cetera. And then from a development perspective, you're running applications. You're running application stacks. You need to understand how to troubleshoot applications. You need to understand how applications scale. You don't need to know how to build the next Twitter or Instagram, but you do need to understand you know, general programming. I think everybody, I'm going to leave everybody with this, is that if you're going to work with cloud or Kubernetes, I think the basic understanding is some of my core training came from building an actual server. I worked for an internet hosting company. We built servers. We racked and stacked them. I installed the OS, troubleshooted connectivity, put in some routes. And yes, I was at the DOS prompt putting route tables and adding all the. And I think understanding that and firewall rules is actually key to anything you do within a cloud environment. Yes, you're not touching it physically, but you get to understand and troubleshoot how things work and connect. And I think that's key for understanding that I actually just came up with a business idea. I'm not going to drop it here because nobody's <laughs> taking it. <laughs> you know, this is what happens when like minds go together. Yeah. Michael, I'm going to leave everybody with this. How can people get a hold of you? Where can they connect with you and look for more of your content? Yeah. So the best place right now is LinkedIn. So feel free to follow me over there, Michael Levan. I also have Twitter, but I'm, I'm a little bit less active on Twitter than I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and I also have a link tree that I'll send you, John, uh, that you can put in the show notes that way. That, that's like, cause I just do so much stuff and I'm so all over the place that the, the link tree just kind of, you know, points you to wherever you need to go. But yeah, LinkedIn, uh, link tree, michaellevan.net. Those are the three best places. Michael, I heard you got a cool website. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And th- thanks to Meyer Media for, for a lot of really cool landing pages. Uh, Michael, you're awesome. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it and helping us understand Kubernetes. Sure. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate you having me on. All right, everybody. Michael Levan, consultant, trainer, and content creator. Our topic today was Kubernetes, virtualization of the virtualization and data center layer, the cost, the efficiency, the skills, and everything that it takes to move from development to production. And no, we didn't break it down in step-by-step, but Michael can help you with that because he has in-depth knowledge and he's not a self-proclaimed expert, but in my opinion, he's close enough for it. Everybody, this has been the John Meyer Podcast. Don't forget to hit that like, subscribe, and notify because guess what? We're out of here.